think are the best movies about Los Angeles? I have a list of six, actually. All of them are in my top 100. I think five of them are on my top 20. They all fit chronologically, or they all work chronologically. So Chinatown, which is a film that is set in Los Angeles in the late 30s, early 40s, and then Sunset Boulevard, which takes place in the 50s, and then The Long Goodbye, which is kind of a transitional film from the 60s to the 70s. Repo Man, which is a film set in the early 80s, and then Shortcuts, which is set in the 90s, and then Mulholland Drive, which is set in the early aughts, but has that retro feel of whether it's the 30s, 40s, or 50s. So those, to me, are the quintessential L.A. films. Yeah, what about The Big Lebowski? That's also one. Uh, Day the Locust, if you want to go back to the 1930s. Uh, that's a great one. Donald Sullivan, but no one's probably seen that, but that I definitely, we definitely recommend that one. It's about Los Angeles going mad, the madness. 
which ties into the story we're going to do today, Mulholland Drive. Day of the Locust, I think, is based on a Nathaniel Hawthorne novel. Yeah. That third act, or the at least the last 20 minutes, takes place at a Hollywood premiere, and it devolves into... Madness. And one of the lead characters in the film is played by Donald Suttle, and his, his character's name is Homer Simpson. That's right. <laughs> Billy Barty's in it as well. Karen Black, Burgess Meredith. Final scene is really, really crazy. It's kind of like uh, Kubrickian, like Eyes Wide Shut. They do kind of like, they, don't they like cut to like the artwork on the wall? The madness of like, they're, they're showing scenes of art of like total chaos, and then it's really happening in the streets at a movie premiere. The protagonist is William Atherton, who was, uh, I think it was Walter Peck in Ghostbusters. But he, I think his job in the industry is, uh, like an art director so he's throughout the film he's you see him sketching all of these scenes for like films that he's working on but uh, his personal project that he had been working on maybe before he moved to LA are these series of surreal sketches and when he is witnessing the you know the the madness in, in the in the third act we kind of see his uh, sketches come to life Shortcuts as well, we think is really underrated. Like it's an Altman movie. Everyone still like talks about the player, but no one talks about shortcuts. And that's a Raymond Carver story, right? Yes. It's got a whole huge cast. Why was it not? Uh, why is it not remembered as much? You think? It's a good question. And people talk about uh, the player. They talk about Nashville. They talk about Mash, Long Goodbye. I fell in love with the film the first time I saw it. It's a, it really is a, a, a like a Nashville mosaic set in Los Angeles, where you have twenty plus main characters. Uh, and it just kind of interweaves and it all kind of comes together at the end there's this earthquake and violence random violence well there's random violence and then there's also the chaos of like Matthew Modine and Julianne Moore and you know why Tom that no one no one remembers it it's not on any platforms I haven't seen it on a platform ever Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Stuntman? That's way better. Why is that way better? Actors are phony. Oh. They just say lines that other people write and pretend to murder people on their stupid TV shows. Meanwhile, real people are being murdered every day. What about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tom? Come on. We just saw it together. I'm putting it in there. I'm putting it in. It's great up until the end where I have questions with it, but I think it's really evocative of the city. It's really beautifully made. I love the characters. It's memorable, and it spells L.A. It's like kind of like Boogie Nights as well, like Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia. People will remember that movie. Full disclosure, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. I really love Jackie Brown and uh, Reservoir Dogs, but you know, the other films, they're, they're good. They have their moments, but... Is that why you didn't put Pulp Fiction as one of the best Los Angeles movies? No, 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 no. It's just, it, I, I think that, especially after his editor died, Sally Menke, and I think he's he's at a point in his career where, as any great artist, I think, you know, you, you, you fall in love with your work, and it's it's hard to cut your, your material, and I think that this is a classic example where it's 20, 30 minutes too long. Sounds like someone we know. <laughs> I wonder who that would be. No, I agree. Something like an Inland Empire certainly needed the, the Mary Sweeney touch. But we'll get into Mulholland Drive in a second. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, is a good movie. You should check it out. It's a great L.A. story. But, you know, we don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. But the, the third act was really disappointing uh, to me. Um, I, I didn't think that they were going to go the traditional route of a, a, a factual representation of what happened related to Sharon Tate and, and 
Charles Manson. They took it to a different area, which was not part of what our, we were familiar with, and it didn't like necessarily tap into the lore as much as we thought it would. We'll leave it at that. So the, I think one of the reasons you might be hesitant to, to buy into the Quentin Tarantino bandwagon is everyone's loving it, and you see it online, and everyone's, it's like there's a cult, you were even saying there's a cult of Quentin Tarantino, which you're in the cult of Lynch, and they compete with each other. And even like Quentin Tarantino has fired shots across the bow with Firewalk With Me, all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I think one time, once, once you even tweeted out, there was like, it wasn't upon a time in Hollywood, but it was the shot of uh, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. I don't know. I was browsing through the talkbacks and someone was like, you know, like jealous much or something, something like that. What does it mean? I didn't know. I didn't know if it was like, am I jealous because yeah. Mulholland Drive is not the film that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is or is Quentin Tarantino jealous of Lynch and that Mulholland Drive? Yeah, I like the double entendre, whoever did that. <laughs> so anyway, so we should, should we start talking about the movie? Like, we're here to talk about Mulholland Drive, so. Mulholland greatest Drive. film of the 21st century, according to you, right? Yes, I do think it is the greatest film of the 21st century, and I, I threw that at you, and you initially... I scoffed initially, but then I started looking at the list, and it's, I mean, it's definitely up there. I mean, obviously I love things I love in Glorious Bastards, and I love other movies, but um, maybe not maybe not as much as that. I think you might that might be true, because... 21st century has had a lot of maybe we're just getting old as well like the social network and things like that are not as uh impactful to us but yeah i would say uh i'd still i'll put it number one well i just think that the 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 output of hollywood after 99 was a classic year i think some of the best films of 99 eyes wide shut the insider straight story being john malkovich that to me i was we were both in our mid to late 20s at that point um but there seemed to be a point right after that where more of the adult fare uh, of films uh, became scarce um, comparat- uh, comp- uh, comparatively. And over time, the last like 15, 10, 15 years, it's, you know, we get maybe just a couple of films a year that I think uh, are, are genuinely, not that they cater to us per se, but I don't think Hollywood is, is producing the content that they used to produce. I think there's been a paradigm shift. Um, it, it's almost like, you know, when Jaws in 75 pretty much redefined, you know, what a film could be in terms of dollars and cents. And two years later, you had Star Wars and it became a lot about, you know, franchises and merchandise. Well, we had a good, you know, 20 plus years after that where we, we were st- we had auteurs. Uh, that's another thing. I think, you know, a lot of the auteurs from the you know 70s and 80s either passed away or stopped making movies. And more than any other time in, in cinema, I think that we have uh, film by committee and by dollars and cents as opposed to, hey, look, there's a niche audience and, you know, it might be Oscar time for it or whatever. This is a really original story. That's going with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was reading article after article. It's like, see, there's still a, 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 a place in, in the marketplace for creative new original ideas but this is quentin tarantino he's an auteur he's always going to have a neon light on him but there aren't that many quentin tarantinos but i think that there should be more dollars allocated to more original content you sound like uh, cecil b demented the manifesto <laughs> of the, uh, the john waters movie which i just saw recently which i suggest everyone watch as well not, not a great film but it's, uh, it's speaking if you believe what tom just said it's kind of they're the revolutionaries for the auteur movement maybe well, it's coming back maybe it'll come back tom well i mean everything is cyclical but uh i am not hopeful i think that like you said the the real cinema lies in in, in tv or these uh, streaming platforms where you can have a continuing story that really has replaced the event uh, you know, a motion picture that's not uh, a comic book adaptation 
or you know some Disney fair. Although I will say that like uh, Under the Silver Lake, that's also a new one, another <laughs> LA story. It's a new classic, modern classic. I love it as well. We watched it together, kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You thought the third act it fell off, and it did a little bit. But for me, the overall vibe and feel, it was like a new, new, a new great classic Los Angeles Shaggy Dog mystery LA story. That was great. Uh, it was a great film. It's it's a little too long, and, but the first hour, hour and a half, is tight and solid, and very compelling. It just didn't stick the landing. It did if you knew what the parrot says. Ties it all up in a bow. A lot of the reviews that I read compared it to Mulholland Drive, and compared it unfavorably to Mulholland Drive. Two hit and inherit vice as well. Another movie I love that no one else loves, but I love. The thing about Under the Silver Lake, it doesn't really have that dream logic. It has the madness logic. It has like, you know, you're not seeing unreliable narrator. But it's not like a fugue, like a Fred Madison. It's not. There's moments of fugue or moments. There's a little fugue. Like we heard the pool. Like there's fugue. There's fugue going on. The dog killer when she's going around having hallucinations. There's some fugue. It's just not your kind of fugue. <laughs> I like the film. It's just, I don't think it's in the same ballpark of, of Mulholland Drive, which. No. Getting back to the best film of the 21st century. <laughs> I saw Mulholland Drive. It, it premiered in October of 2001, right after 9-11. And it was a salve, a well-needed salve. That and uh, Zoolander, <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums. Donnie Darko, Ghost World. Yeah. Several good films, but it was a very strange time. I, I, I had just moved to Austin, and I was uh, living with my girlfriend, and I was, I was on the Internet now as opposed to Lost Highway. Um, where I had to really, you know, try to, you know, fight and, and search for information uh, on the, the project. I was fully aware of Mulholland Drive, that it was a television pilot, a failed television pilot, all the trials and tribulations. I remember reading articles, like in, like, the variety was all about the trades, about how it was going down, there was trouble on the set, we were freaking out. Well, I don't know if there was, there wasn't trouble on the set. Lynch actually says that uh, it was an actually, it was, a, it was a great shoot, and he, he didn't get very many notes other than that's not a good sign. ABC taking offense to too many shots of, uh, of dog shit in the courtyard. They wanted that removed. And cigarette smoking. They didn't want Adam Kesher smoking as many cigarettes because it was an ABC show. So there were some notes, but it was a relatively pain-free production. It was only after he turned in his cut of two hours and five minutes for a two-hour you know, pilot slotted and you know obviously with abc we have commercials and whatnot and they flipped out they were like we david we can't do this and david was like well how about you just give me a three-hour time slot let me have my two hour and five minute cut and 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 they kind of went with it for a little bit and then they go no you have to trim it to 88 minutes and he was apoplectic he, he didn't want to do it but he did do it and he he butchered it and they watched it and they hated it and that's when they gave it the old Roman thumbs down, and that's when it died. Can you imagine what that was, too? Because So after this, right, he ends up doing the ending, right? He comes up with the ending. He did not have that ending in the original cut that right. they showed ABC. So it was just two hours of her going like, okay, go, go. Like, just like that kind of stuff going on? Like, what do you No, think? it's what we saw. It's just that... Like a 10-minute scene of the, the woman that gets shot through the wall, the, the cleaning lady? Is that, that like a 15-minute scene? Like, is it, they just spread those out? <laughs> no. Stretched them? I think it's... I mean, if you look at... Mulholland Drive as we know it, I think running time-wise, we're dealing with about, I don't know, maybe 100 minutes, an hour and 40 minutes of what that pilot is. So, and I think it, you know, that was part of the two hour and five minute pilot that he turned in. So another 20, 25 minutes. And 
of material and, and you can go online to YouTube and find some snippets here and there. I think it was just like extension, you know, uh, ex uh, an extension of scenes, certain scenes and a couple of scenes that didn't make that final cut that were a little bit more tangential because they're following Patrick Fischler around, perhaps the one, the guy that saw the winky donuts in the back. I don't think so because he died. Did he really die? Yeah, he's dead. Didn't he have some setup in the beginning that he had a heart problem or something like that? <laughs> but still, like, you don't think in the original pilot of this show, with the, if, if he was going to show this and he wanted the world to see it, that he would not reveal that Naomi Watts is having this fugue state herself within the pilot. That would go on for episodes and episodes and until you realize, oh shit, this is all a dream. Or maybe that wasn't even a part of it. He didn't know anything. Well, I wouldn't say anything, but I just read, I've got the DVD, the Blu-ray of Mulholland Drive, and... There's this great booklet where um, Chris Rodley, who wrote Lynch on Lynch, uh, has a little intro and then an interview with, with Lynch, and they talk about specifically Mulholland Drive. Um, Lynch didn't have a lot of ideas after the pilot, and uh, Rodley asked him, why would you get involved with television again after no Twin Peaks and all the you know craziness you know dealing with the suits and them making you know Lynch and Frost solve the Laura Palmer mystery? Why would he get in bed with a network so soon after that? And he basically admits, I'm a sucker for a continuing story. He liked the idea of being able to find what I think we got in Mulholland Drive, the feature, in season two, three, four, five. That's very scary for the executives then. He's like, I'm just going to find it. Don't worry. Going to be in nine episodes. How many episodes were they planning to do of uh, Mulholland Drive, the series? Back in the day, it was, I think, 22, wasn't it? <laughs> per season? That was no way. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, it would just be three episodes of part eight. Just in, yeah, in her head. Looking down the toilet or something. Like, just some weird dreamscape. Or filling it with lots of minutiae and a lot of long scenes. So is that a dig at the return? Well, just saying it's, it's just style. Well, the thing that is uh, interesting to correlate between the return is that David Lynch sucker for a continuing story. Even though season three is self-contained, it allowed Lynch the freedom to tell the story that he and Frost wanted to tell over 18 hours with a singular vision. Now, with the original Twin Peaks, that was his first for foray into television. I don't think he ever intended to direct every single episode. But I think looking back on it, the reason why he's so negative uh, about season two specifically and a lot of elements about the original Twin Peaks is because he didn't have full creative control with Frost. He didn't direct all those episodes. When you hire someone to come in, even if it's a script Lynch wrote, this person is going to do what they need to do, at least visually. Are you saying Lynch would actually, uh, was he going to direct every 24 episodes of, the, of Mulholland Drive, the television series? No, I don't think he was. And I, I, Chris Rodley asked him that, and he kind of hedged and moved to a different subject because I think his, the interview was closer in 2005, I think is when they spoke. But... It's a good point. I don't think he would have done it. And I think like the David Lynch that we know now would never have jumped into bed with ABC if he wasn't able to have full creative control. That's where Lynch has progressed as an artist, where there is no dilution at all. Even with Frost co-writing Twin Peaks with him, I, I guarantee you that was the blueprint. And he followed the script plot wise, but he went off into many different tangents and tributaries because that is how he works as an artist. He works a lot with intuition, as long as it stays true to that idea that they created together on the page. So let's say that Mulholland Drive the series was really popular, right? It lasted like how many seasons and episodes until like he started bringing like Audrey coming in town, going to be an actress, <laughs> started to do crossovers like Laverne and Shirley in Happy Days, Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive. What do you think? Bobby Briggs shows up, Snake, <laughs> Scott Coffey and Gary Hirschberger are brothers. 
possibly? <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you mention this because <laughs> the original germ of an idea for Mulholland Drive was born during Twin Peaks. Right, and wasn't there Audrey? It was an idea of Audrey going to Hollywood, something like that. Dang, that was it. It was Frost and Lynch, and all they really had was the title, Mulholland Drive, and Audrey Horn leaves Twin Peaks and goes to Hollywood to become an actress. And it didn't go anywhere for many years until his agent, who was the one that brought Lynch and Frost together originally for Twin Peaks, suggested Mulholland Drive as a TV show. And somehow that clicked, and he was able to create the story that we, we now know, but he nixed the whole Twin Peaks connection with Audrey Horn. But um, that would have been very interesting if, if, if they would have done that spinoff in 1991. Would you prefer to have that, or would you prefer to have what we have today as Mulholland Drive? Depends on how good the series is. If the series is kick-ass, then yeah, I'd rather the series is more, but Mulholland Drive is like perfect. So I, I don't think there's really... I think I would, I would uh, choose the movie because I don't think... The television series, there's no way in hell it would be as good as the movie, and it might actually disappoint because it was already an ABC, and there's going to have friction when he doesn't like know what the next three episodes are. He's just going to dream it up tonight. All the guys on the suits are on set freaking out. It would have been a disaster. So it worked out for the best, I think. Even though I, selfishly I would love, say, 50, 60 hours of uh, uh, a, a story about Mulholland Drive with Lynch in full creative control, um... I don't think that he would have directed all the episodes. I think it would have been uneven, just like Twin Peaks, the original series, is uneven. Um, even though I love pretty much all of Twin Peaks, I mean, it's undeniably that, at least in season two, especially after Laura's, or, um, yeah, Laura's murder is solved, that we go, through, we, we go to a deep valley for a while. And I, I, I would prefer to have, knowing what Mulholland Drive is, the greatest film of the 21st century, <laughs> a, a perfect... A, 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 it's not my favorite David Lynch movie. It'll always be Blue Velvet just because of the time and the place and how impressionable I was at that moment. Seeing David Lynch, David Lynch's Blue Velvet at 14, just, I mean, that just, just cemented in my brain. There's nothing that can top that. But Mulholland Drive in a lot of different ways is a better film than Blue Velvet. And I really believe that it is peak David Lynch. I mean, with the return, 18 hours, we've talked endlessly about it. Uh, I love The Return. I think it's one of his best works. I think it's a, a masterpiece. Unique, will live forever, Test, you know, it'll stand the test of time. But Mulholland Drive is peak David Lynch. It is him at the top of his game. I think it's like, it, to correlate it to like a sports player, a, a pro football player, a baseball player, this is uh, David Lynch in his prime. Everything is clicking perfectly. The camera is in the right place. The only thing I can really kind of equate it to is watch a late-stage Louis Bunuel film. Watch uh, Hitchcock in the mid to late 50s. These films by these artists are perfect. The camera is in the right place. The editing is just pitch perfect. The sound design, the music choices, the performances are just spot on. And Mulholland Drive... Even Billy Ray Cyrus? (laughs) Well, that just ties it all together. (laughs) It's actually a good performance, actually. Just forget you ever saw it. It's better that way. When I watched Mulholland Drive the first time, I saw it. I guess I'll get into it a little bit again, and I'll ask Murphy when you had originally seen it. Um, I knew immediately that this was a very special film. Uh, Mulholland Drive really uh, hit me immediately. I knew it was such an important work. In fact, I saw it in the theater three times. 
Uh, one time I saw it with my girlfriend. I think we'd already seen it, and we were in the lobby to see it again. And my ex-girlfriend had a little bit of a drinking and a pill problem. And uh, I think she had a little too much of one or not the other and had maybe a hot flash or something. And she fainted in the lobby. Tracy fainted in the lobby. Like Patrick Fischler in the back of the Winkies. <laughs> did you catch her like the guy in Winkies or did you let him sort of slide through your arms like in Clue? Like It happened so suddenly. I was I was at like the, the stand like getting popcorn or something. She was right by the entrance of, of they were about to let us in. And I looked over one second. She was all there, you know, Tracy bubbly and whatnot. And the next moment I heard gasps and she was on the ground. So I didn't actually see it. But I probably would have done a Wadsworth because, you know, that's just me. Kind of sets the tone for the movie. So when you saw Patrick Fisher pass out, people were like, wow, that lady passed out. Maybe the, there's the beast going to come out. She recovered quickly. I think she took off about 30 minutes into the movie because she had already seen it. Retreated to the car with her flask and her pills or whatever. Are you serious? That's what she did. She did that during Manhunter. She did that during, like, Evil Dead 2. She would just take off and go, to the, I'll be in the car and have her own little party. That's but, hilarious. Uh, so, right there. <laughs> yeah. so I saw it in, in the theater several times, but it, it, it really is like even those transition shots. The over Hollywood. I love the one over Franklin whenever she walks down from Mulholland Drive. Like I love the Mulholland Drive tracking ghost ride, the shot up on the hill. Like those are so great. The mood, music. Yeah, and just those shots like above the city going over downtown L.A. and his sound design. It's like no one could do like these establishing shots or transition shots like David Lynch, just like in The Return with New York. Was he using drones back in 2001? I don't think drones exist. So he was like hiring like what's he's up there in a plane. Hire! Higher! <laughs> Rack focus! It's, Hollywood it's sign. Isn't LA, the city itself, a main character? Yes, that's, it's filled with dread. That's the whole point. All, all people that live in Los Angeles know what that's like. It is filled with dread. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's filled with the bodies of like, scattered dreams and crushed souls and a lot of people going crazy. Wasn't Naomi Watts even saying, like, I was 31 years old. I didn't have any work. I was driving a Mulholland Drive. I was thinking about flinging myself off. And uh, then she just got the gig. She got Mulholland Drive, and she killed, saved her from uh, you know, going, taking any drastic measures. It was kind of like a, a perfect role for her. And uh, so, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's a big part of it, is the, the city itself and the industry. It's almost like the city itself is, I would say, kind of like the Black Lodge. Yeah, it is. The little man is a producer in a wheelchair. <laughs> you know, like, this is the, so it's the same thing. It's not organic. I mean, the city is not alive, but it's, it's so potent that it attracts people from all over the world. And it, it has such a, a diverse energy that wherever you go, you're at the mercy of the town itself. I mean, even within the town, there's all these different, like, you know, subsections and whatever. And, you know, Hollywood's just a small section of Los Angeles, the sprawl of the town. But I've lived there. You've lived there for, for many years. It's a very weird and freaky town. Isolating. You get in your head a lot. You're in your car. And also, he even mentioned this recently. You're like, I felt, when I lived in LA, I felt so small. And that's what you feel. You feel, No matter how big you are, there's always somebody right there that's bigger. And so you're always a little fish, and you always are, like, in, in the shadows of all these, like, titans. And also, not just that, but the ghosts of other legends that have lived here before you. So it's almost like being a rocket scientist or trying to go to the moon, like, to try to actually have a successful career. In Hollywood, it's one in a million. But yet everyone goes, willingly, and sacrifices themselves at the altar, like Naomi Watts. You're in the town, and you're surrounded by these landmarks that you've seen 
in motion pictures. Sometimes you do see a motion picture being filmed. Um, you see celebrities. Um, it does make you feel not only small, but it's kind of unreal. It doesn't, at least the short time that I was there, it was, I, I can kind of see, like, it plays into Mulholland Drive, like this character of, of, of Betty. Uh, actually, I think it's Diane. Wins a jitterbug contest, and that is the impetus to move to L.A. and be a star. I won a jitterbug contest in Canada. I'm definitely going to be a star. Really naive. It has this 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 non-reality, even though it, it is a very real place. And the thing about Mulholland Drive that supersedes, like, the, the, the mystery element, the, the, the puzzle box, um, the dreams... Uh, the dream of Betty Diane is that it's underneath all of that. It really is a, a hard hitting expose on the uh, harsh reality of tens of thousands, millions of people, maybe over, you know, this, the, the course of a hundred years or whatever, you know, Hollywood's been in existence for a hundred years. They're soul crushing, you know, reality of their dreams being, diminished squashed or quashed and uh in and those ghosts live in the nooks and crannies and the architecture in the hills and the bodies on Mulholland Drive and you know the LA River all these places it, it really is a place where you could find yourself you know in a reality that really is a nightmare and that is something that a lot of people talk about is that people try to figure it out and we'll we'll get into that but I think David Lynch was, as a filmmaker, who was, you know, obviously very talented, um, but he was also very lucky. You know, he was at the right very place fortunate. at the right time, and I think he he, rec- he seems like a, a realist, and he's ca- you know he's produced you know any number of films and had to go through the casting process. I think he's see- he's seen a lot of that. He he is someone if you read some old interviews with him, he knows a lot about the history of Los Angeles, and I think it. Uh, kind of, you know, whatever the, the seed of the idea was for him, I think these people, whether it was just a headshot or, you know, people on the street, that he knows good and well that a lot of these people, you know, less than 1% actually, you know, fulfill their dreams. And a lot of the times it turns into, you know, uh, you know drug abuse, addiction, a crime. You, once you get something, it's never enough. you got to hold on or get better. There's, you're never satisfied. That's the problem. No matter what kind of amount of success you have, then once you get there, then you're worried you're going to lose it. And who's after you? It's like it's a tenuous crown you wear. It's, 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 yeah, it's a, it goes on forever. It never changes. New people come in, and they get spit out. 99.999%. What they call the Dream Factory. Is this the first, like, Lynch, like, puzzle box movie? You know what I'm saying? The, the, is this really... Because in a way, it's not a puzzle box, or it's not a comp- complex puzzle box, right? You just, it's a dream. It's all facade. It's a fugue. You don't you don't have to go through that many mechanisms to realize it. Once you go through the, you start seeing. You know, I guess you, it takes a while. When do you realize? I mean, maybe maybe we should talk about that because I think a lot of people like that saw the movie, um, and even some people I've, I've spoken to that did that say they love it don't really understand like the the actual puzzle box, the how how it works. Because I didn't get it the first time when I first saw it. I don't th- I think I had to read the salon article. There's a famous salon article that helped me understand. Because I don't think he'd ever dropped anything like that on us before. Well, I mean, come on. Uh, Eraserhead, I don't think it's a puzzle box mystery, but it is a very uh, abstract, avant-garde, surrealistic piece. Lost Highway, I think, is his first true puzzle box film. But that is more to do with identity. This is a mystery. It is who is a Rita? Why was she in that car uh, You know, with the hitman? 
and why is Betty befriending her and they're playing Nancy Drew. That's what I think the series would have become more of kind of the James, Maddie, Donna, Nancy Drew in Los Angeles within the, the, uh, the industry of Hollywood. But um, I don't think it's uh, easily definable as just Betty's dream. I think there's so much more to the film than, well, the first two thirds is Betty's dream. And the last third is, is, you know, Diane thinking about uh, the reality of what happened. But I want to ask you before we get into it, when was the first time you saw the film? I saw it in the theater. Like I remember seeing it twice in the theater, I believe. In San Francisco, yeah, at the Landmark Theater. And uh, it was great. But I, I didn't understand that. I did not fully understand it the first. I think, I was, actually, I was really hungover. And then we got margaritas <laughs> afterwards. We were really hungover. And so that really messed with our heads a little bit. And I think I brought my girlfriend at the time. I came with, like, Nathan and, like, Jessica. And she was like, what the hell did I just watch? She didn't get it. And uh, took me. that's why I was like, I, I love this movie, but I don't really know why. I, get it, I couldn't under, I mean, I did, but I couldn't understand what was really, I didn't quite get it. And so then this article in Salon, which was a huge deal back in the day, they did like 12 keys to Mulholland Drive, and I read that, and I was like, oh. And then, it, you know, I saw it again, and it became like the fucking work of genius. Everyone, And it was probably his most popular movie of my lifetime when it came out, because after that, all the Lost Highway, Firewalk With Me, The End of Twin Peaks, we've talked about that in some past podcasts. We were like shamed and shunned for being lynchophiles, and then this comes out, and it took a while for it to hit. But it became a huge, cool, he was back. It was sexy. It was new, and it was a mysterious. So, um, yeah, so then he was fucking back, and I loved it. And it was like, it became one of my favorite. And it was, I would say, for the longest time, that I would say, that's my favorite Lynch movie. And now I'm not so sure, because I've seen it so much. I've seen it so fucking, I've seen it probably a hundred times. And so that's, and so I'm not sure what my favorite is, but still, yeah. You said that it took you a few viewings to actually really kind of figure out what was going on. Well, were you able to enjoy the film the first couple of times? Yeah, I loved it. There's a dream logic and stuff. I didn't quite understand. I didn't pick up all the clues. I didn't see how it was all tying in together. Um, but I loved it in its dream logic state, which I, I loved uh, the return. And so, I mean, it took, me, it took us a while to figure out a lot of shit, or at least in our interpretation, to fully process it. Um, but the first few viewings, you're just, it's washing over you like a racer head, you know, and you're like, holy shit. It's like I'm like Homer Simpson on the couch. I don't understand what is happening, but I love Well, it. I think one of the reasons why Mulholland Drive is so successful and considered the greatest film of the 21st century <laughs> is because it takes all the elements of previous Lynch work and it blends it like perfectly where it's not as abstract as the return, but then again, it's not as uh, conventionally, it's not a conventional narrative like a blue velvet. And I think it mer- it's a perfect marriage of extreme lynch and a more conventional lynch because of the television pilot he was setting up um the characters without knowing exactly where it was going to go so uh we have these vignettes basically a lot of i mean we have the core story of betty and and rita and trying to uncover rita's identity and why she has the purse with the money and the blue box but we have these tangents of Adam Kester, played by Justin Throw as the... His breakout role. Unless you, unless you count the DJ from Zoolander as well. Same year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he was in American Psycho as well, I believe. That's right. He was one of the guys. Yeah. He was one of the guys. And then we have that great set piece that you talked about with the hitman, inept hitman, having to kill three or four different people. Um, and it's just escalating. That, it's, that scene is the combination of like violence and comic absurdity is better than 
anything in the return that is comparable. I don't think Lynch uh, uh, equaled something like that in the return. Now, now I'm racking my brain. Maybe he didn't try to do it, but that little set piece itself was just so brilliant that when I was watching it with uh, an audience, you you could kind of gauge the kind of the horror of this hitman killing person a, a person after person, but just the reaction of the, 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 the woman, the overweight woman and how she reacted that elicited a laugh. And then the guy with the vacuum just, you know, hey, walks, walks yeah. in and, and, he gets it, <laughs> and then the, the vacuum blows up and then the alarm goes. So people like, it's almost like the Mr. Eddie scene in lost highway. Um, but that was really kind of broad when his performance was just so over the top and with such an, uh, kind of an oppressive first one hour, the audience was dying to, I find some levity, some some humor in the story, and Lynch just gave it to him, but he turned it up to 11. But Like Robert Forster, he's only in one scene, right? You know he had a bigger role in the series. Oh, of course. And he is very Dale Cooper-like with his stoicism and knowing you know, someone is missing, and she took that path. He saw the lights of Los Angeles below. It was in the trailer, I recall, in that scene. It was. Yeah. And I was like, oh, we're going to get some Robert Forster. And I was like, what the But fuck? that was it, yeah. yeah. So, you came to see if he's out there. to get rid of this god-awful feeling. You have these vignettes uh, uh, surrounded by this core mystery, and it's slowly, like, and of course, the, the big vignette, I think the number one vignette, is the Patrick Fischler scene. I mean, that's, that's one of his best scenes. Like, that, people love that scene. And you know what really makes that scene, in my opinion? It's not just the performances or the dialogue. It's the floating camera. Lynch created this special, or Peter Deming, they had this special, like, jib camera that allowed it to move in a figure eight, kind of like this infinity symbol. He wanted it to float between the two characters. And if you watch that scene closely, we don't know that we're watching a dream right now. But there's this one shot right before they leave. You see Patrick Fischler's Grand Slam breakfast, which I think David Lynch actually ordered whenever he went to Denny's. He didn't touch it, I don't think. He gets up, that, that next cut, turns around to walk away, no plate on table. Now, that could be a continuity error, but that's a pretty big continuity. And I don't think he knew it was going to be a dream at that particular point. But the fact that he's talking about a dream, I think Lynch knew well enough that he was going to incorporate dream logic into the television series. And that, to me, is a big tell. And it also is one of three scenes that take place at that diner. Yeah, it's kind of like the convenience store. Like, it's got some magic and reality going on. Yeah. Well, it's the place where Diane hires a hitman to kill her lover. So part of this you know, dream is, I think, Diane wanting a, a better outcome for herself, creating... He's going back to the seat of the crime, essentially. I think there's some guilt involved. Yes, I would think so. <laughs> you know? I think she immediately regretted how you hit me to kill her girlfriend immediately. Immediately is well, debatable. Well, she then she woke up and said, I went back. The three scenes that take place at the diner, there's the Patrick Fischler scene, which talks about a dream and someone that is behind this establishment that is controlling or manipulating the events within and maybe even Patrick Fischler's subconscious. And he is there to stop it. It really like ties into what Diane is feeling, you know, after she decides to hire a hitman is that if I could just go back to that moment or at least preceding that moment and not do it, maybe I would, you know, obviously things would, would turn out differently. I think that it's that, it's that thing that you and I talked about recently. I had a dream 
that I committed an act of like violence. And in my dream, I was immediately like guilty. And within the, the right after the moment, I wanted to immediately go back and change it. But I knew that I couldn't do it. And there was this just crazy dread in my dream. And I woke up almost like Mick Douglas and basic, basic. <laughs> and I think we all feel that way. Not that we're committing crimes or whatever, but there's this guilt that, that, uh, that we all feel for certain things. And that I think is exactly what Diane was feeling at that moment is that guilt for killing her lover. And that diner is a, a, a major uh, a location, not only with the dream logic, but for her and her decision and really the point of no return. Yeah, and also when she's in the dream logic or she's in her dream and they're, they're doing the, the Nancy Drew mystery, they go back there and that's where she sees the waitress with her name tag and then she realizes Diane, Diane Selwyn. Diane Selwyn, that's her name. And so, and then didn't you say there's a time where they, she, like someone drops a plate or something and that she's, didn't you say something about that? The Patrick Fisher story ties into her, like maybe they were in the same, the same, they were there at the same time. Well, Fischler shows up. What's happening is when, once Betty's dream ends and we realize the reality of Diane Selwyn, basically, if you want to deconstruct this film, if you want to talk about reality, the reality of this film in screen time is right after the uh, Jitterbug contest, you see a bed and a pillow and then, okay, then cut for like an hour and 40 hour minutes. Dream time. And she wakes up after the cowboy in bed, gets up, makes herself a cup of coffee and sits on the couch and reflects on the events of, I believe, really her reality of what really happened about being a failed actress, being in this doomed relationship and uh, hiring a hitman to kill her, her ex-girlfriend and that's it there's really is about four minutes or not even that of actual reality in this film it's just she kills herself th- and then she's only herself. like actually full cooper for like five minutes <laughs> in 17 that's, that's it true. he's only out of the lodge for like five minutes like right what is Mulholland drive Mulholland Drive, I think the very first scene we we are uh, shown is the jitterbug contest. And we see all these doubles. Again. We see the, <laughs> the couples doing their jitterbugging, and then we see these silhouettes. So right here, Lynch is giving us the double motif. He does this superimposition of, of, of you know, of Di- I'm going to say Diane because I believe it's Diane. Do we ever find out if that's really her silhouette dancing, Davy Watts? What I think we're seeing is the jitterbug contest that Diane Selwyn won, which precipitated her going to Los Angeles to fulfill her dream of being a famous Hollywood actress. We see her at the end of that scene kind of come up to the camera with a big beaming smile and she's got these pearls and it looks like she's got kind of a retro dress on. It doesn't look, but it doesn't look like one of the jitterbug costumes. My thought is that we're seeing a double here. We're seeing the reality of her winning a jitterbug contest, but we're seeing a manifestation of her dream of coming to LA and winning an Oscar, so to speak. And she's stepping up to the podium and that old couple that stand, you know, that pulls up, that, that appear right beside her, I think is also, uh, a, a, has a double meaning. I think it could represent 
it's her parents or her grandparents or people close to her, or it could represent a normal bourgeoisie uh, lifestyle that she rejected for this one in a million chance at fame. And I think as a bookend, the reason why they show up at the end of the film, you know, haunting her, torturing her, it's so absurd that these would be the demons, the little people that come out of the box or whatever. But I, I think it's I think it's more uh, uh, to do with her rejection of a conventional lifestyle. Right, the suburban lifestyle. Yes. Where grandma and grandpa are there, and uh, that she rejects that. Mm-hmm. She, and they came back to haunt her at the end. Or they could be like, uh, they could have been the judges in the jitterbug contest. They didn't like, look like you're judges. Like, you're going to go far, but they're from the 40s jitterbugging. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're going to go very far. So I think that's Diane Selwyn. So we see Diane Selwyn, and then we go right into... You know, many years probably in L.A. dealing with rejection. Wait, so you think that she really came from Canada and she walked from LAX and she goes like, that'll be the day. Like, she, you know, she really was that naive. She was like... No, that's her dream self. Okay, that's her dream self. That's her dream self. So she goes to bed and then we start the dream proper, which is the pilot, which we talked about. Lynch didn't know that it was going to be a feature film, but he made it work perfectly by creating that third act. So what we're seeing unfold, I believe, which I think a lot of other people believe, um, it is the dream of Diane Selwyn as a naive, uh, burgeoning ingenue who comes to Los Angeles, but it doesn't make sense. It's not realistic, not just the line, oh, won't that be the day, or okay, Coco. It's that she is a little bit older. She's probably around 30, like you said, Naomi Watts is around 31, right? And then that was one of the notes that ABC had sent to Lynch. They didn't like him casting Naomi Watts or Laura Herring. They were too old. But (laughs) here's this 30-year-old who had this life in Canada, and she wins a jitterbug contest. Her aunt, supposedly, well, not supposedly, well, in this dream. That's a dream. That's not real. That's a dream aunt. But she's an actress because she has gone to Canada to make a film. You would think if she had a, 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 a working actress in the family, an aunt, that she would have come to L.A. at least at some point in the past. But no, this is her first time coming to L.A. So right off the bat, it, it's like Melrose Place. It's perfectly. It's a great apartment. Like what a I mean, that's like the perfect dream scenario to have like a producer hooked up and who's out of town. You get to crash her place. It's a total, it's total dreamland. I bet she like did not, that did not really happen when she came to L.A. She didn't know anybody. She lived into, moved into a flea bag ridden apartment. And she has an audition lined up the next day. It's kind of like Dougie World. Like her, it's kind of like a Dougie Land. She's in a happy Dougie Land. But this is her dream self. This is who she, she wanted to be. I think there's a part of her that, that that exists. They say that, or at least Lynch has said through the Log Lady introductions and, and during the Bravo series that he shot, that he posited the question, are, are the characters in, in a dream, you know, representations of yourself? And I think that we see a lot of that in Mulholland Drive. I think not everyone, but I think we can see personality traits, Diane's personality traits in certain characters. But we can also see, knowing the whole film, why the Adam Kesher character played by Justin Throw is suffering so much because her girlfriend winds up, you know, being his fiance. So it would make sense that she knows who this character is as a, a relatively successful director, that she in her dream would want him to suffer because he stole her, her girlfriend. They probably both came in town like I like that scene at the end where you see like how homely that Naomi was when she showed up. I think you see her from afar and she's got like the farm girl dress, right? She totally looks different. What is she dressed as? Her costume when she's looking at Adam Kesher far away and he's looking at her on the set and she runs away 
She's like she's dressed like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. That's what she showed up as. I think she showed up in that dress. You know what I thought that dress evoked? Judy Barton slash Madeline in Vertigo. That gray power. Well, that was her dream self. I'm saying the real self. When you see her in the second at the end of the movie, you're talking about one of the little flashbacks where she's on the set watching Camilla with Adam. But that's in the the reality section. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That was the real, but I was just trying to figure out what she looked like when she walked on into, she, from air, the airport and like from Canada. She was more like that. And so uh, my, by going back to what I was going to say, she probably met Rita and she was just like a regular actress coming from wherever. We'll stop for a little second and think about it. Can you do that for me? Roby. Okay, you can go. Oh, so th my theory is that, like, the, when she showed up from Canada, she was dressed like Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz, and she was just like a regular, you know, actress that had really no little chance of breaking in. And she ended up meeting uh, Rita, who uh, was also from, who knows, where, Iowa or something like that. She was a regular gal dressing, you know, in her Nancy Drew outfits. And then she met Kesher, and he transformed her into this, like, sex pot. And then she turned on her. Uh, you know, making out with what's her name uh, in the, at that party, who was kind of like a clone that was singing the song. What was the? She looked like her. This is the girl, and so she got taken away because they probably had an illicit love affair. No, they weren't like outed and walking around as boyfriend, as girlfriend, girlfriend. She was uh, Camilla was probably using her wiles, as you said, to like up to further her career, and Betty was being left behind. And so then when she sees her at that party, she gets brought to that Mulholland Drive party and gets mocked and shamed and. Coco, the mother, like taps her hand, and she's and she and her girlfriend's making out with Adam Kesher, getting married, and then also making out with the other her doppelganger, the sexier doppelganger, having threesomes, and she's left <laughs> out, and that was when she was like, "That's it," looking at like Scott Coffee, going like, "I'm gonna kill this." Interesting that the Laura Herring character takes the name of Rita from Gilda. What you're talking about, you're, you're conjuring up a backstory for her character that maybe she was from Iowa or whatever, and maybe. She was from Europe. Reading about Rita Hayworth, it's interesting that she was someone who was groomed by the studio system. Maybe Lynch was kind of using that as... She also was chewed up and spit out in a way. Like, she, she was abused by her father. She, was. she had to go perform uh, in his, like, uh, you know, dance act. They, they shaved her eye. Her forehead was too low. They, like, completely remodeled her, made her over. She had black hair. She, she kind of had a Spanish quality to her. I think it was Margarita Consano was her real name. I don't know who I am. What do you mean? You're Rita. No, I'm not. I think that, and I think Diane even says this, that she met Camilla, because that is her name, is Camilla Rose, that they met on a set. Diane was an extra, and they, and, and, and Camilla was a star, and they started their affair, and she was continuing to get parts, and she uh, would use her influence to get Diane these bit parts or these extra roles. And it's interesting to note, I read it, uh, uh, an interview, it's the same uh, booklet from the Mulholland Drive DVD. Lynch was talking about that Winkies. It's actually a Denny's on Gower and Sunset, I think. Really? Yeah. I've been to that one. Did we go to that one a lot? It was kind of catty corner to the to Roscoe's? Oh, I don't, I, I don't know. It's I don't not know. there. It, was, it had been remodeled. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't even know if it's there. But he knew the history of that. Back in the day, Frank Capra used to set up shop there. And apparently behind that establishment, it wasn't Winkies back in the day, but... Um, that was where the cattle call for people who wanted to be extras in whatever films were being shot would line up behind <laughs> that establishment. And the Winkies. And, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. isn't it? And that's then, where the demon came and got her. Yeah. Well, here's another demon aspect to it. Lynch was at that particular Denny's one day, 
probably by himself doodling on a napkin, drinking coffee and eating his Graham Slam, which he did was quoted as saying milkshake (laughs) and he was listening to a conversation in a booth right behind him and he said that these people were talking about god and he thought it was an interesting and a very pleasant conversation well he got up to pay his bill like the patrick fishler character you know at the end of diane's segment in the diner and he realized he after he saw them he knew the one of the guys in the booth was the head of the church of satan in like los angeles and they were actually satanists and he didn't go really any further than to say that that conversation, because he was asked about the meaning of the, the bum character, that he used that example to describe kind of where that idea came from. But I also think it's a combination of those, those extras, like, you know, the kind of that cattle call that... Maybe the Satanists were running the cattle call. Well, I don't, I don't know that. It's just, it's part of that Hollywood lore. Like I said, Lynch is kind of a student or, you know, a history buff of the, of that town. And I think the, I want to say the meaning of that particular character, it's not like if Diane hadn't died and never got another role that that's how she would have wound up. But these failed actors and actresses and writers and directors and, and models and what have you, a lot of them wind up on the dole poor or homeless and i think that's what that character represents i don't think it's a demon per se um because that bum at the end is holding the blue box the puzzle box and puts it in a wrinkled up brown paper bag and just discards it basically a metaphor for the dreams being discarded like whether it's you know his dream it's actually played by an actress or the metaphor of dreams in general and i think that's what that represents it really is this whole social strata of hollywood that we're seeing the upper echelon of the studio system and these wealthy people and then the players the actors the actresses the directors and the pool cleaners and all these other characters we also see the homeless and we see that one character the the woman with uh, the hitman and michael debar um, when he's at, when Michael, when the hitman, Mike, Mark Pellegrino, I think is his name. He was in the big Lebowski. Eating hot dogs. Yeah. Hot dog? yeah, eating hot dogs. And he was asking this, this, this woman who was obviously living on the streets and maybe, you know, on drugs or into prostitution, if she had any information about the girl in the accident. And that girl, I think is where Diane, I think the reason why she is in that story is that Diane, not saying was that character, but. She was someone. She was down on that level. Down on that yeah. level. Maybe the a lady at the end, the evil demon. We thought in the back. Maybe she had at one point in the 1940s been a beautiful ingenue herself. And so if, if, if Naomi Watts hadn't killed herself and killed her girlfriend, maybe she would have ended up as her. Like she'd be dirty, like the very end. Like well, Naomi Watts is all dirty and comes out and scares another guy, and that's the end of it. Well, but it's full it, circle. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's that's also, how the series ended. You never know. Do you think the Patrick Fishler character was a writer and his friend was his agent? That sounds right. That sounds good. Yeah. She may have like he may have like uh, Camilla maybe flirted with him and gave him she gave him a he gave her a role or something like that. There's some connection in their real life, or Fishler. Or do you think Fishler was a completely fictionalized character in her own mind? I think Fishler is a, a representation of of a part of Diane's psyche. Here's a character who has a horrible dream and wants to either find meaning in it or to end it. And it plays into exactly what we're seeing unfold. And I think, like I was saying earlier, how some of these characters are actually representations of Diane. I think the Fischler character is one of those characters. He's also pretty darn good in Under the Silver Lake, by the way. (laughs) Pretty darn good. 
but getting back to the, uh, the the unfolding of the film, we haven't even mentioned the cowboy yet. But it's also based in lore. Like they really have the ranches up there, and there were cowboys up at Mulholland Drive and stuff. It's an so, actual corral. Yeah, it's a real isn't place. It? Yeah, so, yeah, I like that. And he's actually like wearing Tom Dix, the ghost of Tom Dix. That's Monty Montgomery, who is Lynch's friend, who was actually going to direct Wild at Heart. <laughs> he had the the, <laughs> Thank God. the galleys of the the book before it was being published. And he was going to direct it, and he told Lynch about it, and Lynch wanted to read it, but said, hey, look, what if I want to make it? And Monty didn't think it was Lynch's style, but Lynch obviously fell in love with it and made the movie. So they're, they're, they're chummy, but he apparently is one of the foremost collectors of old Hollywood memorabilia, and he had all those Tom Mix costumes and whatnot, and that is really like the Tom Mix costume of the 20s, the teens and 20s that he is wearing. And it's also interesting. Very ominous when he cruised by, but he, it was very scary. I loved it. Isn't he like a mystery man or a yes. little man? And like the mystery man in Lost Highway, he has shaved eyebrows. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't notice that one. He, he's super creepy. and uh, But you never see like uh, Adam like get his super comeuppance, right? So I got the pool, and she got the pool man. <laughs> <laughs> There's another level with the Adam Kesher character of what he's going through. The machinations of a director trying to fulfill his vision. And what is Adam running up against? All this interference. Casting, uh, you know, whether he's going to be able to, to finish his project. All these things that Lynch uh, has had to deal with in his career. So I, not that Justin Throw's character was an avatar for Lynch, but... He's smoking the cigarette. He's got the, the, the bullhorn. I think there's some similarities there. He's directing a 1950s era um, a film, something that you know Lynch loves that particular era. Oh, as a quick side note, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but um, with the Gilda, the Rita Hayworth, is she was so popular in the 40s that the uh, Department of Energy or whoever was you know in charge of detonating the atomic bombs wanted to put her image on the first atomic bomb. And she found out and she flipped out and she was married to Orson Welles at the time and they put the kibosh on it. But apparently they went ahead with it anyways on the fourth atomic bomb, put her image from Life magazine, that iconic image where she's in the, the lingerie in bed or whatever, and Gilda on the fourth bomb that they tested, which ties into part eight reverberates. Maybe like, uh, yeah, that's all tied together. The unified Lynch theory. This is the girl with Angelo Badalamenti, who plays one of the mobsters with Dan, Dan Hedaya. That, that, see, that's another little vignette, even though it's with the Adam Kesher character, um, with the espresso. But after that scene ends, um, he takes the golf club and smashes the Castiglione brothers' windshield. Jack Nicholson really did that. that was, he had done that in fairly recently, around that time. Or maybe it was a few years before that, in the 90s. But everyone had heard a story about Jack Nicholson going crazy. <laughs> I think he got out in the 405, or he just wailed on someone's car. With a golf club. Yeah. And it was a big story, so yeah. And do you know what one of Jack Nicholson's nicknames is? A uh, little stinker? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Engines. <laughs> that? Mulholland Man. Oh, yeah, he lives up on Mulholland. Mulholland Man, yeah. yeah. He used to live next to Brando. Yeah. Yeah. It's all tight, it's all meta. So probably we can find a bunch of meta stuff. You were just saying how there's not a lot to figure out. Right, there's the main theme of the story. That's the thing about interpreting this, this movie is, is really it's all fuddled through uh, Naomi Watts, this character. So once you figure out her little dream narrative 
and the, the, the other characters, there's not like we have, you know, Adam Kesher to analyze or Coco to analyze or Little Man to analyze or Angelo to analyze. Their stories are all a part of her story. And so that, that, that it really almost like collapses. Like once she goes through the portal, all those stories disappear and, dis- and they don't mean anything. They're all a part of her, her fantasy, like all in the Dougie world. And so that's why, you know, now once you figure out the main, you know, mystery that the, all the other stuff is just is window dressing. Related to a mystery, I agree with you, but just like the Nicholson and the Rita Hayworth and the Frank Capra, that Hollywood itself being a character in this film, that you can break it down on all these different levels. And I think that's one of the the, the genius aspects of this film that makes it so great is that it's it's more than a puzzle box mystery of who is Diane Selwyn, who is Betty Elms, who are these characters. It has more to say about Hollywood. It's about life. And that is rare for David Lynch. I mean, we get the straight story, which is about this, this, this man and his daughter and, and, and his brother. And we get the story of John Merrick and the Elephant Man. Uh, but mostly we're dealing in David Lynch fantasy land. And there's a part of this film that is fantasy land, but I think it is. First three quarters is fantasy land. <laughs> well, but I mean, like I said, I think it works like on a deeper level. It's like when I read about this film, and that's why you know we're discussing this film, is that not to just to break down uh, you know, individual scenes and what is reality and what isn't and what does this mean. It's it's all these different little subsets. I mean, it, it has all these little tributaries. It's almost like David Lynch created like 60 episodes of Mulholland Drive and condensed it into a two and a half hour film and pulled it off and stuck the fucking landing. Well, it is masterful. Like he's, it's very auteurian. And so the, the, the logic behind it, the dream logic is, is great. The only problem is like the characters, we don't hold on to like the characters that we loved, like sailor and Lula or like all the twin peaks characters, um, that those are the ones that are missing because really you have Betty and everyone else is just like not even a real version of who they are. So you, we can't like care about them. No one dresses up as like, you know, a lot of Mulholland drive characters for Halloween. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of log ladies. There's not like iconic roles where people are like, Oh, Betty, you're not, you're a Betty or you're a Rita. Like there's not that, but and even if there were, it'd be those two characters, but everything else. No. With that said, a lot of characters like the Angelo, like the, even the cookie who shows up in the club, club Silencio scene, um, the Patrick Fischler character, the cowboy. There are these characters that have only few moments of screen time, but they make an impression. So even though we don't really get to know them uh, and they are, uh, a part of, of Diane's dream world, they still at least resonate as characters to me in watching this film. Well, but they're also resonate as characters, like reflections of her, of herself. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? On that subconscious level. Yeah. And one of the big things that David Lynch never got to do proper, but has done uh, peripherally was a true film or story about Marilyn Monroe. Now, he was going to direct this film called Goddess about the last several days of Marilyn Monroe's life. And it was about her relationship with Bobby Kennedy and, uh, you know, the Kennedys, the, 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 Frank. The, the circumstances that led to her mysterious death. And it was, I think, the first project that he and Mark Frost, Frost. worked yeah. on together. And or they decided to drop the project or maybe Lynch lost interest because it started to become too real to him. Like he wanted it, he wanted to kind of blur the the lines of reality. And I think it became too real for him. And I think that was one of the reasons why he dropped it. But 
there's this interesting quote that um, uh, Marilyn Monroe's best friend um, said at, in the foreword of the book that Frost and Lynch were going to go ahead and make. And it is, I think, an influence that Lynch used for Mulholland Drive. And here's the quote. He basically said, um, related to Marilyn Monroe, Hollywood, the dream factory, had created a dream girl, Marilyn Monroe. Could she awaken to reality? And what was the reality? Was there a life for her outside the dream? So what he's basically connoting is that Marilyn Monroe, the character, or the, the persona, was more a product of this dream. It wasn't a real reality. Norma Jean was the reality, and she got lost in the persona of the Marilyn character, and it was hard to distinguish between the iconic Marilyn Monroe and the Norma Jean, and I think that that line would have been a huge part of what unfolded in Goddess, and I think he used that with Laura Palmer, who I think is like a Marilyn Monroe character in Twin Peaks and the Diane slash Betty character in Mulholland Drive. And one of the interesting visuals in Mulholland Drive is the state of Diane at the end. When first we see at the end of the dream, when Betty and, and Rita go into that apartment, they see the dead body in bed. And then the reality of Diane just like Marilyn Monroe, that's where she was found, like half naked, in bed. She's Norma Jean before before she ever got the transformation. Yeah, Camilla got the transformation. Well, just like you know yeah. Rita Hayworth, you yeah. know. So or Rita. Yeah. yeah. So I think that they're like not that Mullen Drive and the Diane character is supposed to be a a representation of Marilyn Monroe, but I think his love of Marilyn Monroe uh, influenced the characterization of Diane. Also, not just an influence on Lynch as the director of Mulholland Drive, but maybe as uh, the character of Naomi Watts. Like, she probably, maybe perhaps liked Marilyn. She liked Rita Hayworth, like, before she got involved. Maybe a lot of these things that we see are in, through her filter. Like, she maybe she read, like, Steppenwolf. You know what I'm saying? That the Steppenwolf Theater becomes a reality. Maybe she... Uh, Maybe she watched that show first and ten on HBO with Tony Longo, <laughs> who was the, the the hitman, shows up. Perhaps that's it. Yeah, all ties back into her influences. Steppenwolf, Herman Hesse, one of my favorite authors yeah. and one of the best books ever. Yeah, published. That scene is very Herman Hesse-ish. I I, I I agree. I've never se- I've never read or seen anyone compare Hesse with Lynch. So kudos, my friend. Yeah, do you want to talk about that scene? Yeah, please do. No, I think that's, I mean, that's the scene, I think, where the shit goes down. That's when we realize that it, this is, it's all fucking, this is not real. Silencio. 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 Basically, he's showing, like, there is no band. That what you're seeing is not real. And so then they start, she starts having a panic attack. And then, like, her love, her avatar self, her avatar girlfriend, starts almost, like, decomposing. It's like Inception, even though I don't like that movie as much anymore, but everything's <laughs> collapsing on itself. Um, although, what is... What do you think silencio means, Tom? It is an illusion. It's the post-coital trip to Club Silencio. You think they went on a, girl, a date like that to that, that Club Silencio but when, in real life? And that that was like, you know, that this is the, the, the warped version of that. They go back to Winkies. Maybe that they have been there before. Seems like that would be a good date to go on. Yeah. Go to the theater. Magic, magic theater. Have you ever done this before? I don't know. Have you? 
that pretty much is the beginning of the the new shoot to to tie up uh, the Mulholland Drive pilot was uh, Lynch creating uh, the consummation of of their love. At least I think uh, Naomi's love for for Laura Herring or Diane's love for 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 Rita, and that scene uh, is not only very sensual, um, done tastefully, it's real. It's very real. it's very real. Intimate, the music, it really is, uh, I mean, it's got, you know, it, it's got, it's eroticism, but uh, it, just like any time David Lynch directs a love scene, I think it's his most poignant love scene, really, um, between, it's a genuine love that she has. I mean, it's a little odd that, you know, after knowing her for like one day, that she's in love with her, but it's a dream. You know, she's been in love with her for many, 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 you know, months or years. But um, that, that scene uh, leads into the, the Club Silencio scene. But what, what, what's happening is, is that we're, it's the, the breakdown of her reality with, within the, the, the dream. So we have the consummation. I mean, she's basically a reliving or able to consummate her love with her dead lover right before she cut her hair and put on a wig to like look like her. So I think a, a part of it is that Diane wants the reality of Camilla. She wants to be a successful actress. I mean, she probably wants to date someone like Adam Kesher. That would be a boon to her career. So everything that Camilla represents uh, is something that Diane wants. And here she is physically altering her appearance to look like her within her dream. And she makes love to her. But then in the middle of the night, Rita starts speaking in Italian, I think, and says, come with me. Let's go. And we're in the new segment, basically. And it, they, they take this, you know, nighttime trip. It's like Laura and Cooper in part 18 and Sailor and Lula and Fred. And they don't say anything. They don't say anything. Hands. They're in the dark yeah. in a car at night traveling to an unknown location. And you can see there's fear. There's fear. And, and also this, kind of excitement. But also they're going down to the destiny. They're, this is a destined ride. Right. The rabbit hole. They're yeah. now fully into going into the rabbit hole. And the cinematography communicates that to the audience. Like it starts to like, you know, kind of warp and, and, and like that whacking technique that he used in Lost Highway. You can see the screen stretching. stretching. The reality is is becoming unreal. And they go to the Club Silencio. And I think like you were setting up is that even though this is within a dream, we're in a David Lynch world in a David Lynch dream. And I think that this is the quote unquote portal between two worlds. Yeah. It doesn't exist. I don't think, who knows, maybe there is a Club Silencio that they went to or she went to. But I think that this is a place in her mind, a portal, like something that is not part, a part of her, but not part of her, almost like the cowboy has this otherworldly like, feel to him that he just shows up out of the blue. He has all the, the answers, even though he's not giving you, you know, uh, all the details. He seems to be in a position of, of knowledge and power. Well, this is a location that that has knowledge and power, and it's basically telling the dreamer, and so I mean, explicitly, that this is all a tape recording. This is not real, and it's done in a, in, in Lynch's stylistic way. It's done just beautifully. It's set at the same location of the Fireman's Mansion yeah. in Part Eight and, and Part you know Seventeen as well, briefly, and. Um, like you said, Diane's chair, I mean, the, starts shaking. It's not her shaking. It's her her chair. It's like that, that portal 
is coming to life. It's trying to shake her up by the time to wake up. And here she is next to her, her lover, who's still a part of her imagination, not a real, a ghost, as you would say, which will lead into the ending, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, it's just, and then the mysterious blue haired woman. Silencio. So I'm saying, what does Silencio mean? Back to that question. <laughs> I thought you wanted to kind of dive into what. Well, no, Club I'll Silencio, talk one thing. That, Club Silencio. One thing. No, I meant just actually the Silencio. Like, what does that mean? I never spent time trying to like unravel that. I don't think there's a, a deep meaning behind it. You don't think it's like kind of a now it's dark, like the version of now it's dark for this? I because think... Silencio means like quiet your mind, and you're going to you'll see what's really happening. The dream will be over, and the reality will come crashing in. It's perfect. You didn't yeah. even have to ask me the question. I, I totally agree with it, and I think it's just it's also a perfect you know a, a perfect like visual of seeing this woman in the balcony th- that has an otherworldly look to her and a very mysterious it wasn't Patty Lupone, was it no it's actually a script supervisor oh, yeah. you know the woman in the return who said hey maybe this scene's a little too long and Lynch said that was her that was her Fuck that who cares how long a scene is i mean there's a lot of things that i don't think should be interpreted I don't think that every scene, every line of dialogue has all this rich meaning. I think the work itself has the meaning. And there are certain things that are just so perfect visually. And Silencio was like, what a great last line of dialogue after everything coming back to this place. Well, I was also living in, in San Francisco when this happened. And one of the things that made the, the Mulholland Drive caught on was with the gay community, right? And I remember reading articles and it became like a midnight movie, for, especially for lesbian couples to go see. Because I think of it in this angle, they could interpret the movie as like it very well could have been a, le- a thwarted lesbian love affair that they were not able to fulfill because Camilla ended up, like they had to be beards. You know what I'm saying? That the system like drug her lover away from her. And her, maybe she did, they did love each other. Maybe it was real, but she chose her career over her and left her behind and so it's like a tragic love story in that regard that's very salient because that was still at a time where everyone was closeted and it wasn't and, and i think people just they focused in on the the more the titillation the eroticism of the scene and and uh i think it's one of the top three love scenes between women ever i think this and the uh the, the hunger with susan Sarandon and Catherine deneuve and bound with Gina Gershon. I never saw that actually somehow. And Jennifer Tilly. Great movie, great relationship. I bet a lot of people probably had the same reaction to Bound because they were strong women. Yeah, I think I did read that that was like another, like, I need to see that movie. Uh, Rebecca Del Rio singing the acapella of crying with Jorlando. I actually forgot she was in that scene. That's right. Holy shit. Really? That was great. I mean, I, I, I get chills. She's to cry. It's moving. What is she even singing? Do we ever interpreted the, the... It's the, the song Crying by Roy Orbison. Oh, that's right. That's right. So it's here's this set piece with these characters in kind of a strange setting. and it, it kind of reminded me of the Blue Velvet in Ben's apartment, even though that's kind of more realistic. <laughs> but he's singing in dreams. But it has that otherworldly feel. And it is my favorite scene in Blue Velvet. And I think the Club Silencio scene is my favorite scene in Mulholland Drive because not only is it so beautiful to look at and to, to listen and to experience, it works on a deeper level emotionally when we realize what's happening with Diane and Camilla in the guises of Betty and and Rita there. It's about to end, and it's very sad. Poignant. And what, Poignant. So what happens after that scene? Where do we go? So what happens is is that they, she, like, after this whole thing, right, 
of the performance and no Ibanda and none of this is real and they drag Rebecca Doria she faints on the stage and they're just left the main guy looks kind of like Rip Torn doesn't he the main guy no Ibanda he's got a little Rip Torn and you know what he was at the Twin Peaks Fest last year when we were there he was shooting that documentary on that's right Captain I saw Pulsar. him yeah yeah that's right deliver the message do you understand yes ma'am as a matter of fact I do I think one of them goes to get a tissue out of the purse and the blue box is there. No, the key is there. So they go, they don't say anything. They go back to the apartment and they both walk into the bedroom. And Betty, I think, puts the, the purse down and then Rita goes to open the box and Betty's gone, completely gone. And then Rita goes, she says something like in Spanish or Italian and she takes the key and she opens it and the camera goes inside. That's over. And then it drops to the floor. Yeah. And then Aunt Ruth walks in. So it's over. Yeah. That's it. So Who's Aunt Ruth again? Aunt Ruth is Betty's. Oh, so she's back in the house. She's back in the house. And that never happened. That never happened. And so that's that's the, that's the tell is right there. Is she even Betty's no, aunt? No. No, no, no. I agree. Yeah. No. I agree. I don't think so. This is just a woman that that's an interesting choice. Saw. That's an interesting choice to show her walking around. I forgot about that. That's yeah. cool. I like that. So, and then we have the... The, the the room starts to you know, do the little <laughs> yeah and uh, and then the cowboy appears time to wake up girl little yeah, girl, yeah little pretty girl time to wake up and then we see Diane and do you think Diane is I mean she's obviously not in a good state she looks haggard do you think she's like an addict she's she looks like she's addicted to something but other than we, coffee <laughs> but you don't see like you would think that if you wanted to show that she you don't see any paraphernalia on the table hello it's me Leave a message. He's giving you visual clues of like where we are in the story. Ashtrays full of cigarettes. And like I said, this is basically Diane is uh, awoken and she's now, she's ordered the hit. I think Rita, uh, uh, Camilla is dead. I think that either she was killed on Mulholland Drive or her body was disposed of on Mulholland Drive. Does she get the call at some point where she picks up the phone, like the deal that's been done or something like that? Or does she, something with a phone, like she's calling the hitman? In a scene. No, she's right? not. Co- there's this, there's these, there's these. The ringing phone. Quick cutaways in the beginning of the film, like trying to find out, you know, about the girl with uh, the little man, Mr. Roke. Right. And the back of some guy's head and some guy with a huge forearm. There's all these phone shots, like, where's the girl? You know, get it done. All this stuff or whatever. <laughs> and then Diane's on the phone to Camilla to go to that secret party. But the phone is ringing at the end, I believe, when the door is knocking. And I think it's basically... The, the walls are closing in, whether it's the police coming because her roommate or her former roommate said, yeah, the cops came by looking for you the other day. I think that she knows, but the only clue of the actual like hit is that blue key. The hitman puts up the blue key. He says, whenever it's finished at the diner, he goes, whenever it's, you'll find whatever we talked about here. And he gives the blue key and she's like, what will I find? And he just goes, <laughs> of course, he doesn't give you an answer. And that blue key is on the coffee table at the end. So... We don't see what that opens. I mean, is that a Pandora's box to something else? That's what I'm saying. I think it is. I think it probably is a metaphor. It didn't really exist, that this is some sort of like creation of her own mind. Like that she's opening Pandora's box. I think that was even part of criticism back in the day or that people were interpreting as that. So I just want to know if like the series went on, if we could have had scenes with like the little man in the wheelchair being like hurly burly, being like all like, a really bad producer, like Les Grossman in like Tropic Thunder. That would have been funny. I would like to have seen more of him. But I like just the little touches that we got because he keeps it mysterious. I think this is Lynch doing the last tycoon. He's doing like his, his version of what, 
the studio system and the suits are like, and it's freakish and grotesque, bizarre and run by insane people. It almost ties back to that horror movie we love called Society from like the 80s where the guy realizes that there's like this crazy alien sex cult which is running Beverly Hills. And a lot of people think that. that like I've lived in Beverly Hills and it is like they're aliens and that there's a whole nother secret cabal going on that uh, is, make, is pulling the strings. And I think there's like a, a hair of like a paranoia running through Mulholland Drive and not only with, with, with Diane, but Hollywood in general and the machinations of this mysterious project that Adam has to cast this particular woman and maybe the project isn't his anymore. Like this is no longer your film. And you know, who is doing this? Is it, is it just these mysterious suits or obviously I think the Castiglione brothers, I mean, the connotation is that they are connected to the mafia. De Laurentiis. Did he piss off De Laurentiis? Is that a De Laurentiis avatar? <laughs> Again? Did we talk about this in Lost Highway? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Who's De Laurentiis in this? We didn't talk about one scene. Was that I love the, uh, when she does the audition dressed as like a vertigo and that's a great like fucking, and that's like what she could have been. Maybe she really was that good. Who knows? But she really kicks ass in that scene. And that's really what made me uh, draw, draw me. Cause I remember the first time I saw this, I'll admit it. I was like, what the fuck is this Betty character? Like, what are we watching? But she was so saccharine for the longest time that I was like, I was turned off. And, and uh, that scene really drew me in when we saw her real, uh, her chops, which is probably, she never gave her performance that good an audition ever, but maybe she could have, but she did in her dream. So maybe she did have the chops. Yeah. I mean, that was the transformation. But remember her like reading lines with Camilla and it was just terrible. But then she got in there and it was, she transformed herself and she was kick ass. Did she actually get, she didn't get the part though, did she? I don't think that was the Sylvia Norris story. I think what Adam Keshner was directing was the Sylvia Norris story. It's all still kind of confusing. Was that Tab Hunter? She was, who was she? Like? Chad Everett. Chad Everett. Chad Everett. But I think what happened was is that the casting agent was so enamored with her performance along with everyone else in the room. And I totally agree. That was uh, the moment that she kind of came to life as a character because I agree with you. She did seem kind of saccharine, but there's a reason watching the whole film that that was her representation, why she came off like that, that naivete. But the casting agent took her to meet Adam Kesher because she was like, hey, look, babe, you're too, you're too good for this, this movie. I want to take you to like a real movie. And then she locks eyes with Adam, but he's like torn. He's got to already cast the girl, her doppel, in this role, but he sees something in Betty and that kind of ties into her like kind of dream construct that she really is the girl. She should have been the girl. This is the girl. I think no matter how good she was at the inner workings, they were going to, someone else was going to get it who, who was connected and that she was going to probably get like, that was her own psyche showing, you know, what Hollywood did to her. Maybe she couldn't face the reality of that ultimate rejection because what she winds up doing is she winds up saying, Hey, look, I, I'm sorry. I can't do this right now. I got to go because she had to meet with Rita to go check out that apartment complex. So she actually foregoes a great opportunity yeah. in her dream to go help out her amnesiac friend or friend who suffers from amnesia to find out, like, you know, her, help her find out who, who she really is. That was her diving back into the Dougie world before well, she had to face the reality. Right. They face yeah. the reality of the cold hard truth of uh, what I think probably happened to her as Diane in the Hollywood studio system. She got to right to the point where the director is baking goo-goo eyes at her and everyone is enamored that she's the next Julia Roberts. I mean, she is like, you know, she's going to be the next big thing. And she's like, no, I, I'm sorry. You know, she's the good girl from you know Deep River, Ontario. She's got to go ahead and help her girlfriend out. I'm still kind of deliberating what her talent is as Diane. My gut is that she thought that she was 
more than she really was. And well, she, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, think so. And I think that's true for a lot of people. She won a fucking jitterbug contest, dude. <laughs> and what makes you think you're an actor? Right. Although the first person she saw was Coco, who was played by Ann Miller, who was a great dancer in the 40s and 50s. She was a right. wonderful dancer who became an actress. That's Ties true. Ties into her dancing chops. There's also a great Lee scene. Lee Grant, also another celebrity Yeah, Lee sighting. Grant, who is a great... Witch. They're she's, coming! Yeah, she, what? What does she say exactly? Well, she says, like, uh, who are you? <laughs> who are you? And she goes, well, I'm Betty. And she goes, no, no you're not. I mean, to be here. Yeah, no. and then she goes, someone is in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> Betty also says at one point, when Rita knows that Mulholland Drive is the key to something, that Betty wants to, to investigate. She wants to play Nancy Drew. And she tells Rita, hey, look. Let's pretend to be someone else, just like in the movies. Yeah. So it it, yeah. it, it ties That's in good. these little lines of dialogue. Like, I'm from Deep River, Ontario, and I just I find myself in this dream play. So, you know, it's all there, and I think that Lynch weaves it majestically. He marries it perfectly. Do you think that the ABC suits when they went in the theater and saw Mulholland Drive, and they were like, oh, <laughs> should have picked this up? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. HBO. Someone. Why did he ever negotiate with HBO? Why was he always with ABC and networks and shit? Why did he just go to HBO? It's a good question. The French still love David Lynch. Pierre Edelman was, I think, the producer in France who saved Mulholland Drive. He raised $8 million to finish this thing. Where where are his benefactors in France? Why doesn't he do like the Woody Allen thing? He, he went over to France like you know for 10 years and started making films. You know Why can't someone give him a blank check? But he did say recently... It doesn't matter how much money I'm given if I don't have the ideas. It just it makes it more stressful. I think that's the secret is that he doesn't have like a million ideas. He's got to find them. He's got to find the big fish. Right. And that's why he probably hasn't pursued season four yet. He's waiting for the big fish to happen. <sighs> You've come back. So in, in the end, with the little the little people came out. Give us the wrap up summary. Watching Mulholland Drive again, this ending, that whole thing, I think it's about three minutes. It's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. And it works. It, it, it's, like, it's bizarre. It's abstract because we go behind Winkies and we see the bomb and the smoke and the box and the little people. And then we cut to Diane and the close-up and the, you know, the electricity, the strobe and you know, the screams. And knowing her story. And seeing the little people, you know, just it doesn't make any sense, like kind of crawl through the, the crack in the door and they kind of raise their hands in the air like, yeah, we did it. So absurd. And then appear and just, you know, shaking her and destroy her. Yeah. her down the hallway. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and, and her, I think it's her coming to terms with everything. And I think they represent a life that she could have and probably should have taken the more kind of conventional thing. And it's like. It's haunting her, just like all of the events that led to her, led her to that point are haunting her. This is David Lynch taking it to an abstract place. And the suburbs strike back. She can't take it anymore, and I don't, I don't think that that actually happened. I think that she just realized that the, the walls were closing in on her, and she decided to end her life. But David Lynch decided to show us a very bizarre, interesting ending to the film with the smoke rising up in her bedroom. I mean, that none of that is real, but it's all done viscerally, and it's so potent. Maybe that's why you don't like Quentin Tarantino not sticking the lady, because Lynch always seems to stick the lady, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, but Tarantino's films are a different beast. Tarantino is a great writer, but a lot of his characters that, like, you know, in this, in this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's this eight-year-old girl, and I love this scene with Leo... 
but she's talking like one of the hitmen at the diner in Reservoir Dogs. It's like it's not that it should be believable, but I think he writes brilliantly. But I think all the characters talk exactly the same, and his tropes aren't as interesting as Lynch's tropes. And I think for me personally, I like mysteries more. I like diving into worlds where I don't understand what's going on, but Lynch somehow you know, his tentacles, his creative tentacles, you know, kind of like, you know, hook into my ports a la Cronenberg and I get like, you know, I get juiced up by it. Unlike any other director. Boonwell is a close second for me. The denouement is Hollywood, the beautiful lights. When David Lynch came to Hollywood in 1970, the thing that made him fall in love with the city was the light. light. It's beautiful. It's It's the light and it's the, it's the light at night. And we see Diane and Camilla or Rita and Betty, both as blondes, superimposed over the city. I think they're ghosts. I think that's a happy ending. I think like a racer head with Henry meeting the lady in the radiator in this afterlife where, you know, they hug, they embrace and she's smiling and he's, you know, maybe getting to a smile that she finally has found peace in death like Laura Palmer at the end of Firewalk with me. I think it's a happy ending. Silencio. Yeah, like two, the City of Angels, two angels flying above the City of Angels. Yes. Like they were forgiven, essentially, for their, their Hollywood. The, Hollywood sucks everyone in, so you're forgiven. And, and David Am Lynch I is... forgiven for all my bad deeds in Hollywood? No, no. You still got to atone, my friend. In Hollywood, I, I know the feeling. Like when, you, when you're running out of money, everything dries up, you start thinking about, I've got to have to go back home. Back home to the old grandparents. Back home to the fucking jitterbug contest. How, I mean, that, that, it's almost also in Under the Silver Lake. Like, that was his fear, was having to go back. So that was it. It was closed in around her, and uh, what a great film. We didn't talk a lot about the performances in this film. I guess we did a little bit. Naomi Watts, there's a reason why she still is a star to this day. Star-making. Star-making. Watch Ellie Parker, because it's almost like a little, like, uh, I wouldn't say a sequel, but it's in the same world of maybe what Diane experienced in Mulholland Drive as this struggling actor with a bad relationship that Scott Coffey directed, I believe, right after Mulholland Drive was shot. Um, it's about Naomi Watts as a struggling actor in L.A. going from audition to audition. <laughs> Chevy Chase is her agent. And <laughs> no wonder she killed herself. <laughs> it's not a great movie, but it's a great performance. And having to deal with the reality of Hollywood. Check it out, everybody. One final thing, like uh, up on Mulholland Drive when uh, her Kirk uh, limo gets crashed by the, is that like a Diane X Machina? Like that, those kids, the highway kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so, right? <laughs> yeah. There it is. Well, on that note, I'll see you guys next time. Sweet dream, baby. the uh, crickets right now. I'm back in Texas. We're sitting on the porch. This is our first live podcast ever. 
we've ever done. So it's been pretty good, I think. I've enjoyed it. Uh, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes while my dogs are panting in like 90 degree heat at like 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, we'll probably do it all of our podcasts from the, the porch. What's our next movie? What's what, what are we gonna? Do? Are we gonna do a rewind next? We're doing part 16 next, and then we'll do Firewalk with Me after that. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. That'd yeah. Be exciting. Which will lead into part 17. That's perfect. And then we'll we'll get near the end, my friend. There's we got to think about what we're gonna do. Yeah. Yeah, we've got some uh, some options on the table. Here's one last thing. Like, okay, when then uh, Diane and, and Rita saw her dead body, mm. you know, say, did you know? Was that the time where did you know that was her? Because oh. I kind of knew. I kind of was. Yeah, I kind of had. A, that was like that was, it was starting to like. I was like, wait a minute. I think that was the first clue, right? The first clue was when they called Diane Selwyn and it goes to the answering machine. And the answer machine picks up and it, all it says is, hello, it's me. And it's Nami Watts' Nami Watts, voice. her voice. It's her voice. She's talking to herself. That was her voice, uh, the first uh, clue. But isn't that like so super creepy that they're investigating Rita's identity and they find Diane Selwyn's apartment and it's actually a dead Betty. Body. Yeah, it's herself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't. I, I did not pick that up on, on on first on first viewing. That's why she didn't want to go over there and roll her over. It would have been like <laughs> Empire Strikes Back in the cave. Well, you've sold me. I think it is the best movie of the twenty first century right now. Someone put your own. <laughs> Prove us wrong, somebody. All tours of the world. It is perfect. I mean, it's a perfect movie. It's probably. I think one of my friends recently was like, "Okay, uh, I've got a new girlfriend. She wants to get into uh, what? Do you, what should I show her of all the Lynch of what?" And I was like, so "I said probably Mulholland Drive. That's probably a good intro movie." I, I agree. I think yeah. that's a very uh, a good point. I think if, to recommend David Lynch to someone, yeah, first movie film, in, yeah, that watch that, yeah, that's it. That's great. It transitions you in. So anybody, yeah, if you got somebody out there who wants to get into it, also a big shout out to Scott Coffee. Like I think this is another <laughs> great moment for Scott Coffee, just like Lost Highway. Like when he just sits there, his non-verbal <laughs> acting at the table when he's up at the on Mulholland Drive in Act Three. I thought it was Gary Hirschberger for some reason, but uh, that was some, some great shit. Just he said everything with his eyes. <laughs> You thought that was Snake. That was great. Yeah, I thought it was Snake. Can't be my Snake, yeah, huh? Yeah, Snake for years. Literally for years. I thought it was Snake. Here's to love.